Okay. I am recording. I am also recording. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. We are the best. We We're the are best. Great. We are amazing. The best. Ooh, that was hot. Thank you. You're welcome. Um Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. <laughs> You're listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. That's Deanna. I'm Hannah. We might have a slight delay in our FaceTime, which could um, make for some interesting recording today, but... We're going to do it. We're going to do it and hope for the best. We'll get through. That's right. If we can get through 2020, we can get through one podcast. I think we can get through a single episode of this show. <laughs> I think we can do yes. it. So let's do it. Um, I have somebody I'm excited to talk about today because I have mentioned a few times that I want to talk about her. And I, oh, <laughs> and I realized that in December, for whatever reason, like the last person of the year that I tend to do is a film person. So, because I did oh. Ida Lupino, and then I did Dorothy Arzner, and yes. so I decided to continue that tradition and do another film person, whom I greatly admire. And um, so you probably recognize the name because I've mentioned it a few times. But today I want to talk about Francis Marion. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yay. Um, I I looked at a few different articles, but I ultimately I'm pretty much just gonna read wholesale from an article that I found on Criterion dot com because it was that's a good source such a good source and it quoted all the sources i was already taking from so it was like okay this article is doing everything that i could want to do and doing it better so um yeah i'm just gonna do that and pamela hutchinson thank you for doing amazing research and writing this very amazing um article about francis marion um, I was first introduced to her in film school because she is largely credited with being the screenwriter who invented screenwriting. Oh, shit. Yeah. And she... Why do women create so many things and then those things become mediums for men? Oh, my gosh. I know. And that was so true of film as a whole. I mean, not just screenwriting, but... But the entire medium. Yes. Because it was really yes. like so untapped and so un, you know, people didn't really know what to do with it. And so women came in and they wrote scripts and they shot short films and they made costumes and they acted and they did all of these things that people didn't really think about when it came to that medium. I wonder if because it, it when new media emerge it's like a new frontier that's not well established and therefore 
people read men uh, uh-huh. don't feel comfortable delving into it until somebody else figures it out and then they can run in and go, hey, uh, I'm a genius at this thing. Oh, yeah. And I think that a lot of... I'm painting with broad strokes here, but... But it's true. Well, and we've seen it t- time and time again, right? This idea that, like, this thing that women become really good at isn't considered worthwhile until people start paying money for it. And then all of a sudden, white men go, oh, that's an interesting um, thing that I should be doing. I mean, we saw this with computer programming, right? Which was largely a secretarial job until it Mm -hmm. became uber important and men went, oh, we'll take that. We'll take that back now. And, and now it's like there's a push for trying to bring women into tech and women in coding and women in all yes. these things that they pioneered. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and we talk about it as if we're bringing women into these things for the first time. And we're not. Yeah. <laughs> they pioneered right. these things. And right. um, yeah, so film is is very much one of those mediums. It's like, uh, you know, there are other women in film that I want to talk about. I mean, I think we've mentioned Alice Guy Blaché several times, who was one of the first directors of fiction, of of on-screen short films. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think for a long time with film, when when it was new, men were really excited by little things that they could do with it. You know, filming a train, going down the train tracks. Stuff like that, and it didn't really. Uh, Which was revolutionary. Yes. Let's not let's not get it twisted. Exactly, it was at the time like, what? yeah. But it was really it was women who went. We can tell bigger stories with stories? this. You know, we yeah. can do so much more with this with this thing that we have, and we and it's so untapped. And um, Frances Marion was one of the first people really doing that. Yes. You know. And let's do yeah, it. Yeah, so I um I want to just basically read this first this first paragraph from Pamela because it's it's good. Um, she writes, "It's hard to imagine Hollywood without Frances Marion," which is so true, and yet so many of us don't know who she is. The story of the screenwriter's career is entwined with the story of Hollywood itself, from its pioneer days to the golden age. Part of Marion's skill as a writer was how her mind conjured images and action as easily as it did words, but her career was shaped as much by a series of deep friendships and loyalties as by her instinctive understanding of the new medium's possibilities. Hmm. So, yeah, I and one of the things that's really well known about Frances Marion is that she, as this as Pamela says, she made very deep friendships. And that was really what carried her into the, like, late 30s um, as a screenwriter, as a very, very successful screenwriter, was just, like, making connections with people and becoming really, really great friends with women in Hollywood. And they all stuck together and boosted each other up in really amazing ways. And I think Mary Pickford is, is a is an example of somebody who I don't think she would have the career she had without Frances Marion. So Really? Mm-hmm. So Marion was, you know, at the height of her popularity, she was the toast of the film business. She commanded the highest salary 
at at the height of her popularity, she was the most well-paid screenwriter Hollywood had. But she wow. was she was also noted for her beauty. She was a, a beautiful person. She got into filmmaking through acting, um, of course, as many of the women in film at this time did. Um, well, still, that's that's truth today too. Yes, that's very true today too. And at the end of the 1920s, a magazine called Photoplay called her, quote, one of the very few scenario writers, because that's what they used to call them, whose name meant anything at the box office. And at the start of the following decade, she won two Oscars back to back. If her name is less well known now, it is because she was sidelined once the studio system was entrenched, despite being one of the many remarkable women who were respected in early Hollywood. Wow. Of course, as we just talked about how men kind of came into Hollywood and swooped in and went, oh, this is ours now. Thanks for building it into what it is. And peace out. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I didn't go to film school, so I know nothing about her life. Like her name is 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 something I've is a name I've heard. But like, I don't know anything about her or what she did. Yeah. And, and I took a women in film class. And so, you know. That's a big part of why I know who she is at all, because I was lucky enough to be in a class where they wanted to talk about her, but they did not talk about her in my regular film classes. That's so enraging. Like, I'm glad that classes exist that had we not taken them, we may not have created this podcast, (laughs) but it does infuriate me. Yes that these really significant, important people get railroaded <laughs> to, to I'm full of puns today. Cause since we were just talking <clears throat> about the train, um, railroaded by men and the things they, <laughs> they wanted to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very unfortunate. And I think obviously there's like a big push to rectify that. Yeah. by people like us. Yeah. Um but it's sad that these people's stories almost got erased from history. I know. And it, uh, yeah, and I think with film especially it would be so so easy to erase certain people from history. In fact, it has erased a lot of people from history because film from the turn of that century eroded so quickly there are so many films that we will never be able to watch or know the contents of because it just degraded and fell apart in the cans and that's a lot of the films that that film historians have chosen to preserve are films made by men and there are a lot of films made by women that they allowed to disintegrate and um, there are a few from Francis Marion that are like that, but we'll go back. We'll go. We'll start from from the beginning with her because she has an interesting life. Um, she was born Marion Benson Owens in San Francisco in 1888. Her father and mother divorced when she was 10, and then they apparently remarried a few years later. Um, she was sent to a. That's an interesting time for that to be happening. Yeah, I think that. You know, that just like little things like that, very 
very I'm living my life and experiencing certain traumas, but also learning from them um, at 10 years old. That is super informative for someone who ultimately is a storyteller for the rest of their life. Um, so yeah, she dealt with that. She went to a Christian boarding school, uh, which really only made her more averse to organized religion um, when she became... Funny how that happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she became super rebellious as a result. Um, the opening line of her memoir would read, By the time I was 10 years old, I had been thoroughly schooled in all the social hypocrisies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Way, way to put it like a writer. I know. And she all it's clear, she always was. Um, she was always interested in writing. She was a sketcher. Her mother encouraged her artistic talents and sent her to Mark Hopkins Art Institute in San Francisco as a teenager. And in the comparatively liberated years that followed, she began selling her stories, her poems, and her artwork to magazines, as well as exploring the more bohemian quarters of the city and falling in love with her art teacher, of course, Wesley DeLapp, to whom she became engaged after a short courtship. Oh boy. Oh yeah. The life of an artist. Oh yeah. Apparently they were on a date together when the earthquake uh, of 1906 shattered San Francisco, the one that we, like the big one that we still talk mm-hmm. about to this day. Um, they were on a date when that happened in San Francisco. And that Julia Morgan helped rectify the architecture of buildings. Hey, we have an episode on her. Um, so she and Wesley were married in October of that year. And there is a, there's a writer, Kari or Carrie Beauchamp, who wrote a book about Frances Marion called Without Lying Down, Frances Marion and the Powerful Women of Early Hollywood. So Pamela references her a lot in this article. I want to read that book. I know. I'm, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Um, but... Yeah, she says in her biography that the reason there were so many female screenwriters during the silent era is that, quote, women had always found sanctuary in writing in times when little was expected or accepted of a woman other than to be a good wife and mother. So, yeah. So (laughs) unlike other film jobs that required training and experience, writing could be done in private without having to go anywhere near a film studio. And, you know, in any event, Marion was happier working at home than in an office um, or on a set. And once she became famous enough, studios were like, that's fine. You know, you write wherever you need to write. It doesn't matter <laughs> because you're Francis mm-hmm. Marion and it's your name that's going to sell this movie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she wasn't a recluse. Like, she really liked her own time. She liked to work in her own space. But she liked to be around people. Um, and her work also reveals... She was just introverted, would you say? I kind of think all writers are, even when they're extroverted. a little. You know? Like, even when they have those moments of being wanting to be around people and enjoying being around people, they're still... They need their own time and space. Well, especially to work. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine having to write in, like, a full room full of, like, cubicles of other writers doing that. No. It'd be distracting. Yeah. It'd be distracting. It'd be terrible. Um, But her work also reveals the mind of a woman who traveled, worked, and 
loved with passion. You know, she worked several jobs before she became a screenwriter. And that, of course, informed everything that she wrote. Like, the fact that she lived a full life and was traveled and kind of understood the ways of the world a little bit before she came to Hollywood means that, in my opinion, that she had a lot to draw from. Yeah, I think especially in the entertainment industry, that's very important to go into the world. Because if you want to tell stories about the world, you can't be so up your own ass about one way of living. Like, that's true, I think, of directors, writers, performers, editors. Yeah. I don't know. It's... I'm just speaking from my experience at grad school. One of the things that I was told is like, go live life, hang out with people who aren't actors. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that you learn what people are like as actors are not like other people. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, not to not to like go off on a tangent here, but I feel like when you can start to tell when writers in Hollywood haven't been around other fucking people for a long time. Because yes, they're... they haven't been around anyone but Hollywood yes. people. And so their stories start to feel less real. And and they're, they, it's, it, again, going back to that director who's so far removed from what people live like in normal apartments. And he's like, your apartment's really shitty. Yes. Oh, these actors, they live in the... It's like, yes, because they don't have a shitload of... What are you talking about? Why do you forget that not everybody lives in mansions? Like, what... Exactly. Exactly. That that shit. That shit. <laughs> and you can feel it. Like, we watched, um, or at least we attempted to watch Wild Mountain Time. Oh, no. Yeah. I've read some interesting oh, reviews. Oh, boy, yeah. I won't spoil anything, but, but it's like, okay, you are so far removed from real people in real life that this is the thing, the only thing you could think of to make him weird enough that they wouldn't get together this is the thing i did read that spoiler okay that's it's it's weird but we won't spoil it for on the it is weirder watching it i swear to god it's even weirder watching it than i thought it would be even knowing what the spoiler was because there just is no real life in any of this and so anyway yeah and but that one of the best reviews I read was just like I'm sorry Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan are two conventionally extremely hot people and you're trying to tell me that they've been secretly pining for each other for years and years and years and nothing ever happened they were neighbors they grew up neighbors and yeah. they never ho- what yeah exactly they're both fucking hot of course they would have and their dialogue is fucking bananas it doesn't make mm. any sense and and so. You know, to relate that to Francis Marion in some way, it <laughs> it is like you can tell when when a writer hasn't fucking lived and right. Francis Marion lived. So she went out to work um, picking up shifts in a fruit cannery and yeah, she canned fruit and um, she was a telephone operator, but, you know, she didn't. Like, she didn't last a million years in those positions, but they both informed her writing. They both informed short stories and scripts later on. And the hours that she devoted to her drawing and her writing, um, 
unfortunately left little time for her art teacher husband, and they were divorced after four years. And at that point, Beep, boop. yeah, well, well, but at that point, she decided to become she decided to become a reporter and a commercial artist for the San Francisco Chronicle. And a commercial artist, yeah. So she was, from my understanding, she was creating um, art in some way. I don't think she was a comic artist, but I think she was creating drawings and graphics and things for the newspaper for ads. Okay. And you know they weren't using photographs at the time, so yeah, it would have been, it would have been anything that they would have used a photograph for. Um, she right. was doing the art, art instead, and. From that point on, she was, you know, she was divorced, so she was taking care of herself. She was earning her own living. Um, she was employing her creative talents and earning earning her own way off of that. Wow. And, um, yeah, and it's interesting because that was really when she started to get her, she started to dip her toe into Hollywood a little bit. Mm. It, I think it was in 1911 when she was she still in San Francisco at this time? Yes, because it was for the San Francisco okay. Chronicle, and so certain people would come up um, to San Francisco because it's like a five six hour drive from LA, I think. So yeah, so it's a it's a day's up the better part of a day's drive, and and actors and and cars are faster now than they were. <laughs> That's true. <then. laughs> But actors would come up and and do publicity for their various films and and plays and things. And I do think it was in 1911 that she sat down with Marie Dressler, who at the time was a big silent film star. And that was, from, from what I remember, that was when she really was like, oh, that sounds like a super interesting profession. And she and Marie Dressler really got on um in that interview and so working for this newspaper started to give her just a little bit of exposure to that world and um she married her second husband robert dixon pike in 1911 i think and he was like okay well we have to move to new york for my job but instead they ended up moving to los angeles they switched uh, they switched trajectories and went to L.A. And what did he do? For a I don't actually know. But I, uh, you know, New York or L.A., I feel like it must have been a creative thing. Yeah. Probably. Um, you would think. Yeah. And she was fine with that. You know, she couldn't work for the Chronicle anymore, but she was interested in what was going on in L.A. in, in Hollywood. And um, she pretty quickly got to work designing theatrical posters for Oliver Morosco, who I don't actually know that name at all, but I think he must have been a director. So yeah, so she was designing these posters, and by a happy coincidence, this was just around the time in Hollywood that the film industry was really starting to make a foothold there, that LA was becoming, you know, the film capital Right. And um, so in 1914, she ran into Marie Dressler again. And... Oh, hey, girl. Yeah. And (laughs) Marie was in town to film Tilly's Punctured Romance, which I actually watched for my American comedy class in, you know, Uh 2009 or something like that. 
and it's black and white silent film and Marie Dressler is so fucking funny you know she was slapstick with the best of them and um yeah so she was in town Francis Marion was like hey you remember me and they had because they had both clicked um Dressler was like yes of course I remember you and she took Marion under her wing and started to introduce her to her new friends in what they called at the time the flickers. Ah. <laughs> I love that. Not movies, the flickers. Aww. What a time, right? When it's so new that you don't even have like the name for it that ultimately you're going to be known by. But it's funny that it still sticks around because you you call movies flicks. It's true. That's so true. What a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Like a chick flick. Yeah. A flick. Um, it's true. And it's interesting that movie is the term that stuck around when they started calling them talkies once you had sound. Mm-hmm. But people are like, nah, movies. They're movies. Movies. That's the one. That's the one that's going to stick. <laughs> so yeah, Marie Dressler said that making movies was exciting. She said it was like sitting in the middle of a cement mixer. And she was like, Francis, you are gorgeous. You got the looks. You got to be an actor. So it was the beginning of a very close personal um, friendship and professional relationship that endured until Dressler's death in 1934. And time and again throughout her career, Marion and Dressler would come back together. You know, they would spend a few years apart and come back together, but they were always friends. Marion wrote a few of Marie Dressler's very famous roles, hmm. you know, when, when she was um, a little bit older. And she was really considered the actress's best ally. I like that uh, Pamela, Pamela Hutchinson has said, said that in this um, article. Um, she could be an actress's best ally, and that's because she really understood how best to write parts that would, you know, bring out their best attributes. That would be interesting and wouldn't just be wooden and one-dimensional and because she lived life. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Marie really saw that. She understood that about Frances pretty quickly, that, like, she wanted to make sure she kept her close. And Hmm. even though Marie was like, no, 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 I can't be an actor. You know, I really appreciate that you think that. Um, I can't do that right now. So She said that to Marie. Yeah, she was like, I just don't think that's right. But, But she continued to get closer and closer to Hollywood. And finally, at a party, she met Mary Pickford who first, before she knew that Frances could write, she commissioned her to paint a portrait of her. (laughs) Sorry, it just blows my mind when people are, like, gifted in visual arts and other artistic media. (laughs) I'm like, cool, good for you. Thank you. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's crazy, especially in Hollywood when, like, Knowing one person means, like, knowing a lot of people, especially at this time. Because what happened after this, of course, is that um, she 
really started to solidify this relationship with Mary Pickford. And right after that, she met director Lois Weber, who is a, a famous director, another woman in Hollywood who we have to talk about. Um, but she was a director at the time who was making big movies, and she was really looking for a, quote, refined type of starlet. And mm. Mm. Francis was the first person. She came to, Francis met with Lois, and Lois said that, and Francis was like, that's great, but I would really like to understand the other side of the camera. Mm. And Lois said, okay, I will help you with that, but first you have to do some acting for me. So, yeah. So Francis signed a contract. And, of course, you know, I I said before that she was born Marion Benson Owens, and it was at this time that she became finally Francis Marion. That was the screen name that she and Lois sort of contrived together. Hmm. So she didn't just act, though, because at the time, filmmaking was very much a collaborative and sort of cheaply done activity. So she also moved scenery. Kind of like student film. Exactly. Yeah. She moved scenery. She wrote press releases. She edited films, meaning at the time she cut films, like literally with scissors and tape. And um, this was, as you just said, her film school and the place where she fell in love with making movies as a whole and realized that not only did she want to do all of these other things, but more than any any of those, she wanted to write them. She wanted to write the characters that she was acting. She wanted to write the characters that she was editing and all of the things that they had to do and the events that they had to act out on these studio these you know not sound stages yet but these studio stages um and it was mary pickford who finally gave her the job that she wanted as a screenwriter or a scenarist or scenarist i don't know how you would have how did how did Mary Pickford have that ability? Did she get her in the right room or was she producing? Mary Pickford was a producer. She was... Oh, shit. Yeah, she produced <laughs> so much of her own stuff. I mean, she was one of the original United Artists. I didn't know that. Yeah, the the theater chain that so many of us know now, UA or whatever it is, United Artists. Yeah, United Artists. Um, yeah. It was Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and like one or two other people. But she was a big thing. You know, she was Hollywood's it girl. And I, yeah, she could kind of do whatever the fuck she wanted. So Frances Marion said, hey, I kind of want to be a screenwriter. I want to be a scenarist or scenarist. And Pickford was like, all right. Um, Let's do this thing. Yeah. You come and write for me. You will be on a contract with the famous Players Lasky Studio which I don't think exists anymore. And you're going to just, you're going to write my parts. You're going to write for me. And your salary is going to be very, very high compared with everyone else doing this job. So, you know, Francis was like, cool. I want a friend like that. Yeah, don't you? (laughs) Um, So the professional and personal union of Mary Pickford and Francis Marion weathered many changes of studio and fortune over the years. The films that they made together are practically the model of how to protect and expand upon an established star persona. 
They, wow. yeah, they shared a sense of fun and an energy that audiences found very attractive. They came back time and time again to, you know, pay their money to go see them. And um, if Pickford's fans liked her in little girl roles, which is what she was famous for, you know, she was like the girl in the pigtails. Um, mm-hmm. The two women put together films in which she would play irreverent, spirited, or even naughty variations on that trope. <laughs> um, changes were on the horizon, though. Toward the end of the war, World War I, Marion spent a year in Europe as a war correspondent. Interesting. Yeah. And um, Mary Pickford sobbed to Motion Picture Magazine, quote, it isn't only that there never will be another writer like her, that without her scenarios, I will lose the biggest inspiration I have, but I am losing my best friend, the dearest chum I ever had. I know. Isn't that sweet? I mean, it's sad, like, that they had to spend that time apart, but it's also so sweet that she... That they trusted each other so implicitly, not just with their professional careers, but with their personal lives and, you know, that they loved one another so dearly. I think that's really significant um, and rare. I agree. uh, To have, like, a professional working relationship and a personal relationship that both fit so seamlessly together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were so close that um, after she came back, back to the United States in 1919, she divorced her second husband, (laughs) and then she married her third husband, Fred Thompson, who, this is so funny, he was a chaplain who went on to be a cowboy movie star, (laughs) and she and Fred Thompson went on honeymoon with Mary Pickford and her new husband, Mary Pickford's new husband, Douglas Fairbanks. <laughs> they all went on honeymoon together because they were so close. Cute. I know. Very cute. And Douglas Fairbanks was, I believe, a director, and I think he was one of the United Artists, but I can't remember. I mean, not that you and Benji are going to go on a honeymoon because you got married ages ago. We didn't go on honeymoon, like- though. Oh, well, then come on a honeymoon with me and Alex and we go on us. <gasps> okay. We want to go to Tokyo. <laughs> oh, shit. If we could finagle that someday. All right. We want to go to Tokyo Disney really bad. Okay. I'm fucking there. That sounds great. And Universal over there and, and what? Double honeymoon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's do that, because then we'll be like Mary and Francis, and it'll be like a match made in heaven. Oh, my God. And we also have a really good, close personal relationship and a, a pretty uh, bitchin' working relationship. I think so. I think we do pretty great. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we should talk about this again. Okay. Okay. So... Her successes with Mary Pickford in the 1910s gave Frances Marion a very grand entrance into 1920s Hollywood, leading to her reign as one of the business's most esteemed writers and one of the movie colony's leading behind-the-scenes women alongside fellow screenwriters and friends June Mathis and Anita Luce. And she had this humongous mansion. She had this whole thing built 
from the ground up because she had the money and she had the clout and she, I don't know if it's there anymore, actually. I should look up what happened to it, but she had this fucking humongous house because she was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood at this time and could afford it. You know, she was making fucking bank on these on these yeah, movies with mary's help yeah yeah so yeah she was just she was doing great and in 1920 she had a huge hit with the fanny hurst adaptation humor-esque and in 1921 she directed two films herself which was something she did from time to time but not that often and um of course she directed mary pickford in them and she dis- she soon realized that she preferred writing to directing. You know, she wanted to try it, but running a film set was a lot of work. Um, but she was at her element, really, when she was at her desk. And she wrote, um, I'm just going to read out some of these. We might, we might cut some of this for time, I, I think, but I'll just, I'll say this this paragraph she wrote some of the greatest hollywood films of the 1920s including such screen spectacles as the desert western the winning of barbara worth which had an unforgettable flood climax apparently which i assume must have been very expensive you would think yeah uh the tent city built for the filming required around 2,000 laborers to build jesus god but the greatest challenge of that story was engineering a love story for stars Vilma Banky and Ronald Coleman into a story about irrigation and desert reclamation. <laughs> wow. Um, that was the hardest part? Yeah, it was like, it has to be a love story, but it also has to be about irrigation and desert reclamation. How do you make both of those things happen in the same script? Um <laughs> And she had to rework her script mid-shoot to downplay the role taken by a young and unexpectedly charismatic actor named Gary Cooper. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. She she warned the director, this guy is going to steal the picture. And so she had to do a bunch of rewrites in the middle of the thing to, like, make him not do that. (laughs) That is great. Yep. And, of course, this was in the middle of, like, a town being erected by 2,000 laborers and then being destroyed by a flood. God, that must have been so expensive and (laughs) unsafe. Early Hollywood was quite a place. You could do some... Literally the Wild West. Like, you could... You'd be like, I want to accomplish this. Can we do it safely? No. No. Well, let's... Who's willing to do it? 2,000 laborers? And there people... (laughs) fucking buster keaton doing all the shit that he did i'm like i know what i know in an article for photoplay in 1926 marion described the process of adapting great novels for female stars but with a touch of self-deprecation or tongue-in-cheek humor quote we tear it down we reconstruct it we make the woman dominate and the male character as passive as every woman would like to have her husband we end up with a splendid vehicle for a woman star and the sl- cyclone wrecked story. Uh, okay. Yeah, so she was really known for adapting novels and creating screenplays that obviously made um, the woman the hero and the star because it was primarily women who were going to see films at this time. 
They were the ones paying right. to go see them. They were the ones crowding theaters. So there was no point in trying to make your film appeal more to male audiences because male audiences didn't quite exist yet. What a reversal. Yeah, I know. And it's, it is, it's such a reversal. Um, and it's like, Frances Marion was such a, she was such a great screenwriter that it was really rare that they had to change or do rewrites or make big, you know, make big changes to her scripts because they were just, she understood stru structure and she understood adaptation and she just understood dialogue in such a way that it, it wasn't necessary to do many changes. And, um, her, her script for Stella Dallas apparently was so tight that it was hardly changed for the talking remake with Barbara Stanwyck in 1937. Really? Yeah, they barely, they didn't barely changed a word. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah, they didn't have to. They just didn't have to. Let's see. So, her, oh, shoot. It looks like her husband died on Christmas Day, 1928. That sucks. Her third husband? Her third husband. Wow. Um, a theme emerges in Marion's 1920s work of lost or adopted babies and unorthodox parents, from the stolen child mm. in The Love Light to Vilma Banke's foundling in The Winning of Barbara Worth, Stella Dallas's sacrifice of her maternal role, Min's protection of Nancy in Min and Bill, the estranged father and daughter in Anna Christie, 1930, and Wallace Beery's single dad in The Champ in 1931. Um, it seems like she was exploring the many forms that motherhood could take. The, hmm. Yeah. The Champ in 1931, one of Marion's earliest talkies, is especially interesting in this light. It's a boxing film that is also a male melodrama playing out like an update of Chaplin's, Charlie Chaplin's, The Kid, and a precursor to De Sica's Bicycle Thieves. Wallace Beery, so often playing a thug, is here a sympathetic father to his young son, even if he is a drunk. By contrast, his ex-wife is a respectable society woman, but she has little experience of parenting. Marion shows us that mothers come in a variety of guises and often splits the mothering role into two characters, the champ and his ex-wife, Stella Dallas hmm. and Helen, Min, and Bella. And this theme neatly ties into one of Marion's other pet subjects, the sympathetic outcast, Hester Prine hmm. from A Scarlet Letter, um, Stella, Min, and Bill, Anna Christie, and even Billy Dove's fallen Corrine, Corinne? in the Marion Davies vehicle, Blondie of the Follies. Um, which, I mean, and that's a, that's a trope that has always existed in storytelling, I think, mm -hmm. uh, in modern history, and um, is particularly popular even today in film. Yeah, and I think that's maybe why it's worth mentioning is because she pioneered so many of these tropes and so many of these, like, archetypes that we employ so often now in our in our hollywood films um right you know she was exploring a lot of personal thoughts and ideas but she was also 
employing um, things that she knew would sell in the box office, things that she knew both women and, and male audiences wanted to see. And so she was just so very smart about the types of content that she wrote because she took on a lot of novels to adapt, but she did that knowing that an audience was going to want to see it. She didn't just take on anything. She was so smart. Which is a very fine tightrope to walk. Yes. Uh, to walk because that's so frequently the question, especially by studio execs and stuff these days, of like, yeah, it's a good story, but will people want to pay money to see it? Right. Yes. And she was really the first person in a in a large scale way to have to determine what that was going to look like and what people were going to actually pay to see and every time it turned out she was right she got her paycheck you know she earned that fucking paycheck and it was right it, there was a reason she was the best paid screenwriter in Hollywood yeah um so initially she seemed unfazed by the coming of sound you know we talked about talkies uh, she started the 1930s strong with consecutive Oscars for The Big House in 1930, The Champ in 31, and she wrote Greta Garbo's first talkie, Anna Christie. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Another tale of an outcast woman and her isolated father. Wow. So, plowed full steam ahead into the talking realm. And when adapting Eugene O'Neill's play, which I believe is Anna Christie, Marion inserted a sequence set in Coney Island to open up the drama. But she made sure to keep in her character's memorably dry first line, quote, give me a whiskey, ginger ale on the side, and don't be stingy, baby. (laughs) She was also married once more, fourth time. Nice. Briefly to a director named George Hill, who directed The Big House, which she wrote. And she researched this crusading prison drama by taking a tour of San Quentin, which I feel like is a good example of, like, how she recognized that um, she needed to live life and understand how other people were living life to write appropriately. She didn't lose that. I think so. Yeah. Uh, The visit was a grueling experience made worse by a patronizing warden who smirked, quote, I'll be curious how a little woman like you handles this situation. <gasps> mm-hmm. And offered to show Suck her... him in the face. He offered to show her an execution. No. Yeah. Yeah. But she wrote... Oh, you can't stomach it with your feminine... Wa- no, because it's fucking gruesome. And why would I watch that for entertainment? Right. But she was like, no, it's fine. And she wrote, she wrote The Big House, this script, and won an Oscar for it. She also was a war correspondent, so I'm I'm sure she already saw yeah. stuff that she didn't need to. I know. Like, come on, you fucking dick. Ugh. A few years later, she came to write Riff Raff in 1936, in which Jean Harlow plays a cannery worker. Remember, she used to can fruit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Jean Harlow plays a cannery worker falling for Spencer Tracy's tuna fisherman in the midst of union Cute. wrangles. So she clearly was drawing on her own life experiences for that. Yeah. And she continued to be loyal to her first friends in Hollywood. 
Marie Dressler, who had been so sympathetic to her at the Chronicle in 1911, would then count on Marion's support at the twilight of her own career in what we know is still an ageist industry. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a smash hit role for the 60-something at this point, Marie Dressler, who had been, like, in poverty before this. She'd basically, like, gotten to the height of her fame, gone down, was in poverty, and then Frances Marion wrote her this amazing role um, hmm. in Men and Bill. And Dressler called it the role she had been waiting for all her life. And it won her a Best Actress Oscar. Oh. I know. And so, like, this, this time in Marie Dressler's life is considered when she was at the height of her fame. And that's in part because Frances Marion was like, you know what? I can see that you, my very, very talented friend, are having some troubles and I'm going to write you a role and I'm going to put you in this fucking movie. And it reanimated Marie Dressler's career until she died. Wow. Yep. That was the power of Frances Marion. Um, so, yeah. She, uh, she really was just she was somebody who whose name meant something and who also remembered people who helped her and remembered people right. she really liked and who were kind to her and promised to you know get her a leg up in the industry wow uh let's see Mary Pickford's final film was their last collaboration, Secrets, in 1933. Um, it was based on a play Marion had adapted um, and really didn't give a shit about, but apparently Mary Pickford was like, no, this is the one. Please come do this for me. You're the only one who can write this. And Francis was like, okay, fine. You're my friend. I'll do it. Like, I don't like it, but I'll do it. And it... Uh, it was a big deal. And it was the it was the last of Mary's career. This is a long ass article, I'm sorry. That's fine. Um so interestingly, as the nineteen thirties wore on, Marion became dissatisfied with screenwriting. Um, and her status in the industry started to slip a little bit, too. I think, like, talkies took a lot more. Sets needed to be more elaborate. Actors wanted more depth in their dialogue. You know, mm. it, it was starting to really evolve as an art form. Mm. And while, yeah. while she had created so much of the basis for it for screenwriting um it was still i think getting a little bit beyond her you know a lot of the films that she wrote after this point after like 33 ish she started to have co-writers on people who would write her dialogue or at least refine her dialogue so mm -hmm. a lot of the films that she penned started to become co-written instead of just francis marion vehicles um, and she was just kind of like, nah, I'm, 
I'm not as into it anymore. You know, the memories of the silent era, the powerful women she had worked with in that time, seemed to embarrass Hollywood in the time of the talkie. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And there were just far fewer women in prominent creative roles. So, you know, Frances Marion kind of fell from favor a little bit. You know, it's like Hollywood kind of forgot how much they owed to her. Mm. And they just moved on. They brought her on to consult sometimes, but they didn't really bring her I feel on like anymore. That's, that's just how Hollywood always is. Yeah. It moves on to the next big thing. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I find this quote really interesting that they had to, that female writers in the 30s who consulted with MGM had to hide their work to prevent snide comments about, quote, the tyranny of the woman writer. Because they had, they had dominated so much in the, in the teens and 20s, before the talkies really became popular, women writers were where it was. That was, it was very rare that you found male writers <laughs> instead of female writers, and now it's kind of the other way around. Fucking eye roll. I know. I know. It's, it's just, it's a lot. I don't know. Just another one of those things that like women pioneered and then men went, oh, yeah, that's cool. That looks really fun and lucrative. So why don't we just take that from you? And, uh, mm. you know, bye bye. So Frances Marion's name can be found on more than 130 films. Her last. Wow. I know her last screenplay. That's prolific. It's yeah, oh yeah. And and they were making films so much faster during the talkie or during the silent era. Oh, yeah, it's just like churn them out fucking machine. Yes. So I know that that's part of it, but that's still like in 15-ish years, that's a lot of fucking movies. <laughs> it's a lot of yeah, movies. Yeah, I'd say so. Um her last screenplay credit was 1940's Green Hell. An Amazon adventure directed by James Whale, but she continued to work and was under contract with MGM, um, although her contributions to scripts in that decade often went uncredited, and she was finally let go in 1946. Mm. Yeah. Outside of the film business, she wrote more novels and plays. She published a novel in 1925, um, called Minnie Flynn, a, a cautionary tale about a young woman who enters the movie business. <laughs> yeah. um, her, her final published book was her memoir, Off With Their Heads, a serial comic tale of Hollywood, published a year before her death in 1973. And um, she moved east for a decade or so after leaving MGM, living and writing in New York and then Connecticut, but she finally returned to Los Angeles in 1962, where she picked up all of her old friendships with Mary Pickford and um, Gloria Swanson and Lillian Gish. And um, Gloria Swanson wrote the foreword to her memoir, Off With Their Heads. In that foreword, Swanson called Marion an original, adding that what she 
uh, what she became did not exist in 1913. Yeah. Marion had invent- invented the role of a Hollywood screenwriter just as she had created so many roles for her friends. And the role of screenwriter outlived her, which I just think is such an interesting like way of putting that. <laughs> um, throughout her career, Marion found a way to tell stories of female strength and to explore the lives of marginalized people, all while creating spectacles of pure excitement and remarkable tenderness on the big screen. The history of Hollywood would look very different without Marion, one of its finest and most thrilling storytellers, whose films always had the pulse of real life that she sought off the screen. So that is um, the article by Pamela Hutchinson for Criterion, but I just feel like I just feel like it goes over so well all of the things that I have always loved about Frances Marion the ways that she not just pioneered screenwriting but that she brought so much real life to the screen and that she made that sort of a, a criteria of being a writer for the screen like you don't get to write for the screen if you don't know what the fuck life is if you don't know what you're yeah. talking about. And right. I do think that that has stuck. I mean, I think that writers in Hollywood, for the most part, tend to come from backgrounds that are far more realistic than a lot of other people in Hollywood. And... I think so, too. Yeah, and I think that is a legacy that was started by Frances Marion. So, you know... That's why I wanted to talk about her, and I think she's amazing. She is. I'm really glad you talked about her. I don't know. I know that, like, I already have a strong fascination with old Hollywood and the entertainment industry, you know, as do you, so we're kind of biased. Mm -hmm. But I think that storytelling in and of itself is such a basic human thing that has existed for millennia Mm -hmm. and this is the modern storytelling art form that is the most mainstream so it's fascinating to see how it got to be the way that it is yeah at least in our at least in in hollywood yeah um yeah i agree where it was pioneered you one could argue i mean i know there were lots of films being made internationally early on as well but yeah you know but i think that it it really was i mean hollywood really was the birthplace of film as we know it and it was women who created the first fictional films and who pioneered the idea of story being told in a cinematic way because it was primarily women who were going to the cinema and Mm. so the idea that you know, Frances Marion was the first major screenwriter and Lois Weber was a major director of her time and Mary Pickford was a major it girl and basically... And producer. Producer and, and dictated so much of her own image and was one of the founding United Artists. You know, that is... A legacy that we don't talk about. And it sucks that I had to take a women in film class 
to learn those things rather than a general fucking history class. Because the history of film is women's history. And it is amazing to me that we still laud male achievements in film over female ones. Because... Well, it's just amazing to me that it's like now we're we're trying to focus more on increasing diverse voices in film from the creator arena Mm -hmm. and how few female directors there are making major studio films and how that's considered revolutionary now yeah when they built it when yes when they built this fucking stadium yeah yeah exactly yes i agree i totally agree Film used to be such a a women-centric medium, and we have pretended for a long, long time that it isn't. And that men are the only ones who see movies, and movies are an inherently masculine, creative pursuit. And that is (laughs) fucking bananas, because, like, men wouldn't have, have even thought of that if there weren't women making money on it before they came into it. And like, oh, oh, you you can make money doing this? Oh, I want the, I want in on this. Like, yeah, I mean, and granted, yes, there were there were male filmmakers at the time who were making incredible films like we've already talked oh, about Chaplin course, and Keaton course. and you know, Eisenstein and all of those people, but they were Not to diminish their accomplishments, but the thing is, their accomplishments are taught in basic film history classes. Yes. And they did not diminish the accomplishments of their female contemporaries. They would not have started United Artists with one of their female contemporaries if they felt like that accomplishment was not worthwhile. Yeah. And yet. So, you know, I... You're right. Like we talk a lot about, oh my gosh, it's amazing that there's that this woman directed this film and that woman directed that film because women just don't direct things. And yet at that time, yeah. I mean, it was not uncommon or unheard of or or revolutionary in any way. And so many of the conventions that we use to this day were created by women filmmakers, women writers, women actors. So, you know, I, I, I feel like that's maybe why I'm determined to sort of slowly but surely reveal the, um, the truth about Hollywood history. <laughs> Pull back the curtain. Yeah, because it actually is. Um, women revolutionized and pioneered so many elements of this industry that we still see today so it's worth celebrating and and even even most importantly of all it was collaborative Mm -hmm. between men and women equally yeah and then somehow that balance got skewed at like at a time when women's rights were bullshit yeah i know like, women couldn't even, like, the women who were going to see these films were likely going to see these films with money from their fathers or husbands. Yep. Yep. Because they couldn't get their own fucking line of credit. They couldn't do things on their own. Yep. <laughs> at the time. Exactly. 
It's so true. Sorry, I'm getting very animated right now. <laughs> but it's good. I think like, I mean, I'm I'm so excited to continue this conversation and, you know, I'll be back next December uh, with someone else. But um, <laughs> I just, it's it's so fun to talk about and I don't know, just little by little kind of pull back the curtain, like you said. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I don't know why that continues to be my... December slash New Year tradition, but there it is. Here I am. Thank you. And that was Francis Marion, the um, creator of screenwriting in Hollywood and Once Upon a Time Hollywood's highest paid screenwriter. Are you a good witch? Or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on on our our Patreon. Patreon. (laughs) Oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. With all of that said and done, what are you excited about? You know what I'm excited about. Tell me. Tell our listeners. Uh, We have a kitten in the house. Yes! (laughs) Who is uh, cohabitating in the basement of my parents' home um, with me and my fiancé. And because we're isolating her until she gets fully vaccinated before she can go meet the other kitty. Um, But her name is Sylvie and she is all gray and she is precocious and sometimes annoying but mostly just really fucking cute and sweet um and i love her she's my new little sister she's adorable it's upsetting (laughs) like truly upsetting how cute she is yes yeah so that's it (laughs) i like it you know i didn't i didn't ask you if you wanted to talk about like the new year or anything like that but uh yeah i'm just i'm just ready to kick 2020 out the door (laughs) fair enough goodbye yeah goodbye well let's do that then that's it's it's the i said i think i sent you a meme like an astrology meme that was about like aries just at the end of the year going why the fuck am i gonna make a new year's (laughs) resolution getting through this year was hard enough and virgos just being shocked that they even made it through like wow okay (laughs) And that's truly where I'm at, where I'm like, wow, I can't believe this fucking year. God, I know. Well, then we'll, then that's what we'll do. We will congratulate everyone on making it through 2020. Yes, clap. Well done. Well done, you. You did amazing. You are so strong. Even if you felt like you didn't. You are powerful. You did, you did it. You got this far. We are so happy for you. We're so proud of you. We're so glad you're still here and listening to us. Like, why? But thank you. And, um, you know, don't worry about New Year's resolutions, but we're going to see you in the new year. 
So mm-hmm. keep an eye out. And with that said, peace out, witches, and happy new year. Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. (laughs) Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. (laughs) Our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Bounce.